this is our theme verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's going to be our theme over the course of Lent. We'll be talking about that uh, to some degree every Sunday. And then as we corporately fast, it's, it's been beneficial individually and corporately for us in the past. So I just encourage you to be thinking about that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. All right, Mark 6. We're going to pick up in verse 1. I'm going to read a pretty long chunk here. It'll be on the screen. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, that's Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and, and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. He said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So that's encouraging for us. Here's the thing for us. Um, I want to step back, use these three stories as a backdrop to talk about something that's important to us. If you've been here for six months, you've heard us talk about this for a lot. If you've been here for three, you haven't heard us talk about it really at all. One of our key values, one of our anchors as a church is that we call it here doing your deal. That's the, a thing for us. It's one of the reasons we believe God's called us into existence. We define your deal, the definition of that. It's the particular way that you go about fulfilling the Great Commission. It's how you and how I go into all the world and make disciples. That is 
your deal. That's, that's what we're talking about when we mention that. It's how each of us plays our role in the Great Commission. The key verse for us is Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do or that he prepared in advance for us to walk in or that he prepared for us as a way of life. The picture there is not just, this isn't a couple of tasks that we do alongside of everything else. This is, this is what we were made for. That idea of we are God's workmanship. Psalm 139.13 says we were knit together in our mother's womb. So you have this picture that God has created us. We're his workmanship and he's created this life for us to live. He's created good works for us to walk in, for us to do, to be our way of life. And those two things fit together hand in glove. Your deal is individually suited to you, and you are perfectly suited to it. The same God that created you in all of your eunice in your mother's womb also created this life that he wants you to live. Mark mentioned the Kingdom Expansion Conference. One of the things I'm excited about is this guy, Steve Thompson. That's that's what he's talking about. These are the these are these are that, that's his message from what I understand. He uses different terminology, but it's the same thing. We God has a deal for each of us, and we have a responsibility to discern what that is. That's a little bit of background on this one. We don't God determines we discover. We don't get to pick and choose what our deal is. He decides we discern. We discover what that is. You see that in this story, especially with the 12 and with John the Baptist. This is Mark 3. You don't need to flip over. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might teach them, excuse me, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. The deal for the 12, they were apostles. That was their deal. And we see here, Jesus picked them. They didn't pick him. There wasn't a sign-up sheet, and they wrote their name on it. There was no tryout process. He just called them to himself out of this group of disciples. He said, these are the 12 that I want. A few verses before that, we know he spent the night before that praying, asking God, who are the guys that you want to accomplish this? You see this with John the Baptist. This is Luke 1 again. You don't need to flip there. I'll be there. So this is... Uh, and angels talking to John the Baptist's dad. Don't be afraid, Zachariah. That's John's dad. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to drink wine or uh, other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So that's his deal to be this Elijah in quotes, kind of the second coming of Elijah. Why? To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see that for John, he had a deal before he was even conceived. You see the idea that he didn't pick it. He was created for it, and it was created for him. I don't think any of your dads had visitations from angels before you were conceived, maybe. That would be helpful for us if we had those kind of written instructions. Most of us don't. But it doesn't lessen the fact that for if you're a person, then God knit you together in your mother's womb. And as he was doing that, he was also creating this life that he wants you to live. And we have a responsibility to discover 
what that is. It's not, for, it's not graduate level Christianity. It's not bonus points. It's not optional extra for people who just happen to have time or your kids have graduated from high school and you don't know what to do with yourself. It's not that. This is vital. He expects us to figure out what our deal is and to do it. At the, the, one of the last prayers Jesus prayed in John 17, 4, he says, Father, I brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. I, com- I brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. He's saying, I brought you glory by doing my deal. And that's the same thing for each of us. That's how we bring him glory. It's playing the part that he's designed for us to play, fulfilling the role that he's created for us to fulfill. That's how we bring him glory. And he expects us to figure it out and then to do that. It's not difficult, but for many of us, when I say Great Commission, you're thinking overseas missionaries, people who live in some hut in Africa somewhere. Our church, conservatively, we have 300 adults. We have more than that, but conservatively, 300 adults would say Stonebridge is my home church. We have six full-time overseas missionaries. That's 0.02, no, yes, 0.02%. Two one-hundredths of a percent of the people in our church. If that's what it means to fulfill the Great Commission, then we are terrible. Some of us, when we think of missions, it's what Alan's doing. It's short-term mission trips. We have 50 children and adults going on trips this year. If you include our kids, we have 400 conservatively. 50 out of 400, what is that, 12 and a half? percent, something like that, again, what are the other 87% of us doing? If that's what it means to fulfill the Great Commission, then most of us, we're either disobedient or we don't matter. And I don't think either one of those things is true. God has a, a thing, a deal, a role for each of us to play, and for many of us, it's right here where we live. Very small percentage of us will be called overseas permanently. For most of us, we're called right here to where we are, to Marietta, to Cobb County, Smyrna, wherever it is that you happen to live, wherever you would consider your world. When I say that, whatever pops into your mind, that's what you're called to. And each of us has a responsibility to discern before the Lord, what is it that you want me to do here? How am I supposed to bring you glory? What's the work that you want me to accomplish? That's background. So as we... Look at this in Mark 6, a few things. So as a church, our commitment is to say, if you're here for however long, we want to help one another, figure out what our deals are. You help me, I'll help you. And then we want to help each other do it. You help me and I'll help you. We help one another. That's one of the purposes of our small groups is to help people discover and then do their thing. That's our primary strategy for just about everything is for people to do what God's put in their heart for them to do. So if you're, if you're here, that's what we're saying we want to do. So what are some things that we can expect? What do we need to prepare for if that's going to be a core value for us as a church? And this is where Mark 6 picks up. One of the things, we need to be prepared for resistance. You see that in the story, Jesus' story of going home to Nazareth. It's difficult to do your deal in your hometown. When people expect you to act like a carpenter, it's hard to come in as a king. And that was Jesus' deal. He was a king. He was ushering in his kingdom on the earth. And it was very difficult for people who had known him for 30 years as a carpenter to really grab hold of who he had become. This again, this is Luke 4. This is a little fuller account of what Jesus said when he was in the synagogue. So he goes into the synagogue. He's teaching. It says the people are amazed. That word is actually more like astonished. It's not 
amazed, I'm in awe of you. It's more astonished, I'm shocked at what you're saying, and you can see why. So the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So how about that? The guy who made your kitchen table says, That's me. I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied about 600 years ago. Hard for them to swallow. The kid who you grew up playing soccer with is now saying, I'm the guy who was prophesied would come and do all of these things. I'm not excusing their behavior, but it makes it difficult. How many of you have ever been to a class reunion? Anybody? Raise your hand. How'd you feel going into it? Most folks are nervous. It's the same thing. We've talked about it before, kind of the expectation trap. Whether it's five years, ten years, twenty years, going into that, there's some anxiety. You hopefully have matured since you graduated from high school. You've probably changed. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're not. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you're successful. Maybe you're not. Whatever the thing is, you've changed in some ways, and you're going back to this weird high school time where everybody knew you as fill in the blank, whatever it was, whoever you were. They knew you skinnier, they knew you with more hair, or whatever it was, they knew you that way. And now you're coming back in a different way. And it causes anxiety for many of us. It's hard to go home. We, but as we push ahead with this whole idea of doing our deals, we can't use resistance as an excuse for disobedience. It wasn't for Jesus. Everything he did, he did on purpose, and he chose to go home. He didn't have to. He, may, he didn't wander into Nazareth. I think he did have to, actually. He didn't just wander there. It's not where the bus stop was. He made a choice to go home. He had this mission. I've got to get into all these towns, and I've got to give them all this message. I need to give them this. I need to tell them this, and I need to demonstrate this for them so they will know I'm the king, and the kingdom of God is breaking into their world. And that meant Nazareth. And I don't know if he was nervous going back or not. He was a guy just like the rest of us. So I don't know how he felt going home. He'd been there for 30 years. Again, everybody knew him as a carpenter. They probably knew he was more spiritual than they were. He probably knew the Old Testament better than they did. So they probably knew he was kind of religious. But for him to say, hey, I'm that guy, who does that? They'd heard about the miracles that he was performing. And I, I wonder what he felt like going back. I wonder if he dreaded going home. We looked a few chapters ago at Mark 2 where his family was not big fans of what he was doing at this point. They weren't his biggest cheerleaders. They were saying, he's crazy, we're trying to take him home. When everybody else said he's demon-possessed, his family wasn't jumping to his rescue saying, no, he's not. So I don't know how he felt going back, but how, regardless of how he felt, none of that was an excuse for him to be disobedient, and the same thing is true for us. For some of you today, I'm convinced, this whole idea of doing your deal, it would, you think it would be easier if I could just move. If I could go somewhere else and start over, then yes, I, could do, I cannot do it here. This might not be your literal hometown, but you're already known. Your hometown is any place where you're already known. 
and you're already known. You're already known at work. You're already known in your neighborhood. You're already known in your social circles. And for you, the idea of suddenly acting in a way contrary to how people have known you. I'm not saying that anybody knows you as wicked or evil or anything, but they don't, you're not that guy or you're not that girl that you feel like the, if you were to do your deal, it would cause you to become. And that just makes you nervous. And you think, mm, I don't know that I can go home. And what I want to say to you is that's not an excuse for disobedience. This is literally my hometown. I went to Marietta High School. I grew up at First Methodist Marietta, and it was weird for me. I was gone for seven years, four years in Athens and three years in Kentucky, and it was weird for me when I came back. And it's still weird for me in a lot of ways when I run into people who I went to high school with or the parents of people I went to high school with. And I, what, I don't know if I call them Mr. and Mrs. whoever, if I call them by their first. I don't know at what point you become an adult. And you can address everybody by their, I don't know when that is. And that's a small thing. It's weird for me when my Sunday school teachers are in this church. I don't know what to do about but that's part of it for us. And for you, it can be the same thing. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to say I get it. But running away is not an option. We can't allow the fact that we might meet resistance to cause us to be disobedient. At some point, you have to go home. And the second point is this. At some point, it's okay to leave. Jesus left. He says he, there wasn't a whole lot he could do. Kind of the, the impression you get from reading Mark is it wasn't a very successful stopover in Nazareth. If you read Luke, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Mark doesn't tell us that. So it wasn't just not successful. It was almost the end for him. At some point he left, and I don't want to get too much into this because it's, a, it's, a, it's very individual based on the situation, but you need to know this. At some point you're going to have to go home, wherever home is, but it's, it's okay to leave. You don't have to stay there forever. Jesus had a clock ticking in his head. I don't see it, but he had a clock ticking in his head, and he was moving. I don't know how long he stayed there, but when it was time to go, it was time to go, and he left. And I don't think he left callous. He didn't leave saying, I'm going to show you. He did None of that. It was just time for him to move on to the next place. And this, that could be true for you as well as you, as you do your deal, and you do that around people that have known you in other ways. You've got to do that. But at some point, it might be that it's just time for you to go. You don't have to keep banging your head against a wall, and the Lord will tell you when that is. Second thing, so we need to be prepared for resistance. We also need to be prepared for success. In verse, thir verse uh, 13, the 12 were sent out by Jesus, and it says they drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So there was success there. There was fruit, and as you do your deal, you should expect success. You're going to bear fruit. That's a promise. In John 15, you stay connected to Jesus, you're going to bear fruit. Again, this deal that you're doing is perfectly suited to your strengths. God created this with you in mind. He created you with this thing in mind. So, as you're doing it, connected to Jesus, you should expect success. And by success, I mean outwardly favorable results. You know that. You should expect to see fruit. And the disciples saw that. You skip down to the next section, though. You should also, and I should also, expect and be prepared for failure. John the Baptist got his head cut off after he'd been put in jail. It says Herod protected him, and that sounds nice. The way Herod protected him is he threw him in jail. And then he cut his head off because he was unwilling to look like a fool in front of these people who he made a promise in front of. 
And we can expect that as well. Matthew 10 gives a fuller picture of Jesus' words to the disciples. In one little section, I think it's verse 24 and 25, he says, a student is not above his teacher and a disciple is not above his master. If they, think, if they called me demon-possessed, what do you think they're going to say about you? In Matthew 10, as you read through, half of the instructions at least are, I want you to be ready when they arrest you. I want you to be ready when they throw you in front of the religious leaders. I want you to be ready when they flog you, when they beat you. Get ready to fail. And we see that again with John the Baptist. His head got cut off. Just like we need to be prepared for and expect success, we also need to be prepared for and expect failure. Ultimately, we're all going to experience both. Mark says about John at the beginning of his ministry, the entire countryside, every person in Jerusalem came out to see him. That's probably an exaggeration. But he drew a huge crowd. He experienced success before he was thrown in prison and had his head cut off. The disciples who we saw just initially have this burst of fruit and success. Judas kills himself, so the other 11, 10 of them, are martyred for their faith. And the other one is exiled to an island. Jesus, the last week of his life, comes in on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Friday, the same people crucify him. We can all expect success, outwardly favorable results, and failures, outwardly unfavorable results as we do our deal. And the reason we need to be ready for both success and failure is both of those things can affect our sense of who we are in Christ. Both of those things can shape our identity because both success and failure stoke pride in us. You get how success stokes pride in you, but failure stokes it as well. If you see yourself maybe as a, you're a balloon, that's your picture of who you are. Too much air, puffed up, the balloon explodes. That's, success can do that to us. Too little, you're deflated. You're just a piece of rubber laid on the ground. Not helpful either. That's what failure does to us. That's pride. Disagreeing with God. Thinking wrongly about who we are, either too highly or too little. Humility is agreeing with him. Thinking rightly of ourselves. That's a balloon that's blown up appropriately and can be a balloon. That's what we're going for. We want to hold on to the fact that, yes, we were created out of dirt. But yes, we're also created in the image of God. Yes, Paul can say, I'm the chief sinner. And yet, he, every church he writes to, he addresses them as saints, as holy ones. Both of those things are true. For some of us, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I get that I'm created in the image of God. It's hard for me to remember I'm, I'm, I'm made out of dirt. I'm going to tend to blow up. For some of you, the dirt part is easy. The image of God part is hard. You tend to be deflated. Both of us are wrong. And for both of us, it's our pride talking. We're disagreeing with what God says. We're both of those things. We need that humility. If we're not prepared for success, our head's going to explode. If we're not prepared for failure, we're going to deflate and we're going to be a puddle on the ground. We need to be ready for both because both of those things can appeal to our pride and ultimately can shape our identity. So what do we do to maintain humility when you're experiencing success? And some of you may be in this season of life, which is wonderful. Everything you're touching is turning to gold. You feel like God is with you. You're doing your deal. You're seeing fruit. People's lives are being changed. You're 
you feel like you're connecting with God on a deep level. So how do you maintain humility when everything around you is saying you're the, you're the man, you're the best, everything is rolling along? One of the things I think maybe the, the most important is to remember your deal with the lowercase d is part of his deal with the capital D. Mark 6, 7 says this. Calling the twelve, he sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. You see who's active in that verse. It's not the disciples. It's the Lord. We're called by God. We're sent by Jesus. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have a part to play, but he's the initiator. He's the one that calls us. He's the one that sends us, and he's the one that empowers us to actually do what we're doing. If we're bearing fruit, it's because he's empowered us to bear fruit. If we're doing our deal, it's because he's revealed to us this is what it is, and he's sent us out, commissioned us to accomplish that. It's one of the easiest things. If you're rolling along and when you're experiencing a lot of fruitfulness in your life, is to remember your part was always second. His was always first. He's the initiator. We're the ones who respond to him. Another thing, and this is subtle. I think it's interesting. Jesus sends them out and says, don't take anything. You don't take anything that you need. I don't have any idea why you do that. Here, take a trip and don't pack a suitcase. I wonder if part of it was so that they would have to depend on the hospitality of the people who they encountered. It's easy when you're People need you, that kind of need to be needed. You're the, you're the go-to person in the office. You're the go-to person uh, in your circle of friends. Everybody, you're good at this, and they're coming to you with that. It can be easy to elevate yourself. We do that all the time if you've been on a short-term mission trip. That's missions 101. Don't forget, you're not just going to give, you're going to receive. It's easy for us to forget that when we're rolling along. We're being real fruitful. Everything we touch turns to gold. And I think Jesus tells these guys, listen, I don't want you to take anything. That way you've got to rely on somebody else to feed you. You've got to rely on somebody else to put you up for the night. He was illustrating to them the body dynamic. Yes, you've got something to give. I've given you something to give. But there's also something that you need to receive. And that's the same thing for each of us. If you find yourself kind of moving ahead as a lone ranger, feeling like you don't need anybody else, you've got this. That's a danger zone for you. Remember, you're part of a body. I think maybe even more important, how do you maintain humility when you're experiencing failure? And you may think, I'm failing. Humility is not a big issue for me. But it is, again, that deflated balloon. And that's where some of you are right now. You're not thinking rightly of yourself. You're thinking too little of yourself. How do you maintain humility in the midst of that? I'm going to read a little bit from Matthew. He has a fuller picture of this interchange between Jesus and his disciples and what happens afterwards. This is starting in verse 11. It'll be on the screen. So after Jesus had finished instructing the twelve, that's what we read in Mark, he had already sent them out. He went on from there to, to, to preach and teach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, He sent his disciples. So John sends John's disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is what I think John's saying. I pointed everybody to you. I'm in jail 
because of what I, my doing my deal. Tell me I didn't point people in the wrong direction. Tell me you're the one who I thought you were. He was looking for reassurance. And Jesus gives it to him. He doesn't just say, yeah, tell him I'm the one. He says, you tell him everything that you've seen. John knows the Old Testament. He knows the Messiah is going to do these things. You tell him, John's disciples. Tell him what you've seen with your own eyes. You don't have to take my word for it. If you feel like that deflated balloon right now, it's okay to ask for reassurance. He'll give it to you. Ask him, am I moving in the right direction? Am I pointed in the right way? Am I doing the right stuff? I know that if I'm connected to you, if I'm being a bit, there should be some fruit here. I'm not seeing it. I'm in jail. And the wife of the guy who has me in jail hates me. Am I okay? It's okay to ask for reassurance. The second thing to remember, and we say this all the time, success, obedience is success in the kingdom of God. Results are not success. Obedience is success. This is what Jesus says about John in verse 10. This is the one, that's John. John's the one about whom it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not, been, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Skip down to verse 14. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. What was prophesied about John? What did this angel say to Zechariah? He's going to be Elijah. Elijah's in jail. And what does Jesus say about him? That's him. He did his deal. It, doesn't, it looks like he's a failure. He wasn't. He did what he was called to do. If you feel like that right now, if you're looking around, you know, there is nothing. If, if whatever the opposite of everything you touch turn into gold, whatever the opposite of that is, that's what's happening in your life. It's all falling apart. Every step you're making in ministry is met with a slammed door. People are not responding to you. You're doing your best to hear the Lord and be obedient. It's just not clicking at all. This is what you need to hear. Obedience is success. Results are wonderful. They're beyond our control. That's somebody else's responsibility. His responsibility. Other people's. They're responsible for their response. You're not responsible for their response. You're responsible for your faithfulness. And you're responsible for your obedience. If you're doing that, whether you're in jail or whether every, you're on the top of the mountain, is irrelevant. Identity always precedes mission. We see that clearly with Jesus. Mark 1, I think it's 11. Before he does anything, he's baptized by John. And heaven opens up and the Father says to him, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. This is my son, who spent 30 years as a carpenter, who hasn't done one thing ministry-wise. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. Our acceptance with God is not based on our performance for him, but his heart for us, his disposition towards us. And if you feel like a failure, you need to know it has no bearing on who you are in Christ. Obedience is success, and he's already put his stamp of approval on you before you took the first step. So rest in that. Yes, we want to pray and believe in all of those things, for fruit and for results, because that's when people's lives are changed. But we don't want to swing this other way. And when we're meeting failure, when things are a struggle, when we feel like we're in jail, you might feel like your head's been cut off. When you feel like that, and somehow allow that to shake who you are 
in the Lord. What it will do is it will cause you to become more concerned about your reputation than your obedience. And then you'll pull back a lot. And you don't want to do that. We can't afford for you to do that. Let's pray. This is what I want you to do. I want you to just think through this. For some of you, this is the first time you've heard any of this talk about doing your deal. For some of y'all, you've heard it ten times. You could have preached the sermon. Where are you? 